As many of you know, we are currently studying through the book of Revelation, and we come to chapter 17 and 18. Uh, this week, we'll be studying chapter 17 and 18, and actually part of 19 on Wednesday night, but we're going to be looking specifically at the 17th chapter today. As I've previously mentioned, and as many of you already know, uh, the book of Revelation teaches us that the world is moving toward a one-world government, a one-world economy, and a one-world religious system, all under the rule of the one that we commonly call the Antichrist. Here in chapter 17 and 18, we have the description of the judgment of that uh, kingdom that will be established in the future. And in these two chapters, we see that the judgment will fall upon every aspect of that future kingdom, the religious, the political, and uh, the economic. And uh, that will all be centered in a particular location or maybe a, a couple of locations, but the name of the future uh, kingdom is Babylon, according to uh, the chapters before us. So chapter 17 that we'll focus on today uh, seems to deal with the judgment of the spiritual aspect of this coming empire. Well, chapter 18 deals with the judgment of the political, the economic, and the uh, commercial aspects of it. So here today we're focusing on the judgment of the spiritual aspect of it. And so here in the verses that we read, we see that there is a, a woman. And uh, the woman is sitting upon a beast. And so we want to just break down what these images are referring to. In verse 7, the angel said to John, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast which carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So we start with uh, the beast, making sure we understand what's being talked about here. Now, it's a, the difficulty is there's uh, this exact same description, this, uh, this beast that's uh, scarlet colored, that has seven heads, ten horns, and so forth, this exact same description is given in numerous places, but it doesn't always mean exactly the same thing. And, and here's what we have. We have on uh, one occasion, it's a description of, of Satan himself, um, a great fiery red dragon, according to Revelation chapter 12. And then it goes on to tell us that it's that serpent of old, the devil who is Satan. So, but, it, but it's the same picture. Then... In the next chapter, chapter 13, we have the exact same description, but it's not referring to the devil. It's referring to the beast, the first beast, the, the one that we commonly call the Antichrist. But here in chapter 17, again, it's the same description, but it's not referring either to, directly anyway, to Satan or to the Antichrist. In this context, it is referring to the actual kingdom or the empire that is to come. So you have to kind of look at the context of where it appears to, to be able to understand, you know, just exactly what is being referred to. Now, why is it that Satan, the Antichrist, and the kingdom are all described in the same way? Because they're connected. They're, there's, there's not, you can't have one without the other, in a sense. And so we're talking about the same thing, but we're talking in this particular case about the empire rather than the individuals involved. And we know that to be the case because in verse 12, we are told that the 10 horns on the beast represent 10 kings. Notice verse 12. The 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So there it makes it clear that we're talking about uh, the future empire that's coming. And notice that it's the beast that is supporting the woman. So the woman is riding the beast. And that 
basically is telling us that it, the empire is going to uh, support the, the woman and all the activity of the woman. Now that brings us to the woman. Who is the woman that's being described here? We're told several things about the woman. One, that the woman sits on many waters. And according to verse 15, that means, as he says here, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So we see that the woman here is exerting worldwide influence. So worldwide influence, that's what's being spoken of. Secondly, we see that the woman is clothed luxuriously, purple, scarlet, gold, precious stones, pearls. What is this talking about? It's talking about the immense wealth of the woman. So worldwide influence, immense wealth, and then a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness. This is referring to the fact that this woman is the dispenser of uh, false religion in the world. You see, the, um, the reference here to abominations, abominations in the Old Testament, although there are several things that are referred to by God as abominations, uh, one of them is uh, idolatry or idols. Idols are often referred to as abominations. We, we read and we, we talk about the abomination of desolation. The abomination is the idol that's set up in the future temple. So when we see the woman with the golden cup, we're talking about uh, the woman being the dispenser of false religion. And now we're told, as we look here in verse 5, the name of the woman, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Babylon the Great. It's very interesting. All throughout the Bible, Babylon is synonymous with uh, the, the forces of the world that are opposing God. And it all began back in the early days of human history, shortly after the flood uh, in Noah's time, where the world was repopulated Genesis chapter 10 tells us about the origination of the kingdom of Babel. And the founder of Babel or Babylon was a man named Nimrod. And it's interesting, it says in Genesis 10 that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord that he gained uh, reputation and influence as a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, that's the, the English translation in many of our uh, English versions. But Hebrew scholars say a better understanding is not that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, but that he was actually a mighty rebel against the Lord. His kingdom was Babel or Babylon. We have the story in Genesis chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel. And you remember that the Tower of Babel was an effort on the part of people at that time led by Nimrod to erect a structure that would put them on equal standing or above God. That was the whole point. And the, the name Babel originally meant the gate of heaven or the gate of God. They were uh, aspiring to do exactly what uh, we read that Lucifer did. In uh, Isaiah 14, Lucifer said, I will ascend to the heights. I will be like the Most High. And for that uh, arrogant attempt, he was thrown out of heaven. That's the same thing that was happening in Babel. Man was collectively saying, we don't need God to rule over us. We're going to be like God ourselves." And so God brought a judgment. He dispersed uh, people by confusing the languages. So Babel came to mean confusion. And in this sense, it's definitely talking about the confusion that comes through false religion. And so the woman's name is Babylon the Great. And it says concerning this woman 
that she is drunk with the blood and the, uh, of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. So now, remember, this is all future. And as we've been studying through Revelation, you perhaps remember that we've already looked at those passages that talk about the great slaughter of believers that's going to take place during this tribulation period. We've seen that there's going to be a great multitude that comes out of the tribulation period that are killed for their faith in Christ. Well, here, what we're seeing is that uh, it's, it's this, this woman that's being described here. This is the one responsible for the death of all of those saints, drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. So this false religious system will have an insatiable appetite for the blood of the saints. Anyone who resists this, anyone who opposes it, anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ during that time will be hunted down and executed at the encouragement of uh, this spiritual power, exercising, of course, uh, its influence over the state. No doubt the state will be the one doing the executing, but the, uh, the woman, the religious system, will be the inspiration behind it. Now, the interesting thing about this here, remember, what we're reading about here is the destruction of this system. And so we read an interesting thing here. It says that the 10 kings will hate the harlot and they will destroy the harlot. So here's the, the picture for the future. So there's this one world government. There's this religious component to it. And, it's, and, and of course, because religion is a worldwide phenomena, the, the Antichrist is going to use this religious system to bring the world under his sway. But at a certain point, and I think it'll be the midpoint, uh, at the three and a half year mark of the seven year period, when this woman here is no longer useful or lo no longer necessary, uh, the Antichrist will turn against the woman and allow the kings that hate the, the, uh, the harlot to destroy the harlot. And we read it here in the verses as we look. Verse 16, it says, and the 10 horns which you saw on the beast, we know that those are 10 kings, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. So what we're really talking about here is the judgment that's gonna come ultimately in this false religion. So uh, the Antichrist himself will, af after he's used uh, religion for his purpose, he will discard it, allow the 10 kings to destroy it, and then he will set himself up through the, uh, the activity of the false prophet, as we've seen, he will set himself up as the, the one to be worshiped. So that's what we're talking about here. Now, let me say this. Revelation 17 is the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation, if not the most difficult chapter in the entire Bible to understand. It is very, very difficult to understand this chapter. And uh, if you read 10 commentaries on it, you get almost 10 different opinions about, you know, what the details are. It's just very, very challenging. But I figured it all out. And if you come Wednesday night, um, I'm going to tell you exactly what it all means. <laughs> so that was a joke, of course. Uh, but we're going to do our best to unravel it on Wednesday night. But... So here, here's what we're looking at. We're looking at, so that so the, the political power, the 10 kings, hates the religious component. And no doubt the religious component has, uh, notice it says that, uh, that the religious component, it says that the kings of the earth have committed fornication. So they've been uh, in cahoots together with one another. And this has happened historically. There have been times historically, of course, where the church and the state have, have blended together and the church has sought to wield a power and authority over uh, kings and rulers. This, this was happening in a major way in Europe uh, prior to the Reformation. When the Reformation came, which was a spiritual 
uh, awakening. It also freed up many of the European kings to throw off the yoke of, of Rome uh, because it's basically the, the Pope ruled those kingdoms uh, indirectly uh, because those kings were submitted to him. They, they understood he had uh, spiritual authority. He could let them in or out of, or let them in heaven or keep them out of heaven, they thought. Uh, but when the Reformation took place, they, they broke away and there was a, a hostility. So, so that's happened before. It, it isn't um, unusual that the, that the religious authorities and the state should, should join together in various efforts to promote the agenda of the state. That happened in the Soviet Union. And many people know that uh, most of the Orthodox Church was filled with KGB uh, agents during the time of the Soviet Union. And it's happened uh, a number of different times. But there, there comes a point where the political powers, the 10 kings, they're, they're finished. They're done with the influence of this. Uh, and the Antichrist then uh, allows them to destroy. So in looking at the biblical picture of this final manifestation of spiritual deception, it seems that in its initial stage, specific religions will be swallowed up into one great spirituality that will manifest itself in the worship of nature and man collectively with only vague and general references to God. So that's how it will begin, an amalgamation of, of religions and a doing away with any kind of distinct doctrines and a huge emphasis on um, the, the deity of man and, and of nature as well. And this will all be based in the center of this new world empire, but it will culminate, it will all lead eventually into the open and blatant uh, worship of Satan. And so this one world religion, when it is destroyed by the political powers represented by the kings, will give way to then the worship of the beast. So the first three and a half years, I believe, this is when the woman is exerting all of her influence. The woman is destroyed in the middle, it seems. And then that brings about the opportunity for the beast himself to come to, to full uh, power and worship uh, which, of course, is the worship of Satan. Now, as I've pointed out before, all of these things will come together with the arrival of the Antichrist. So everything we're talking about right now is future. It's all future. And the good news is that when these things happen, the church will have already been removed from the earth. But... as these things are inevitable in the future, if we are getting near to the, the fulfillment of these events, like we think we are, then we would expect things to be moving in that direction even prior to the, the full realization of these things coming to pass. So. The question is, as we look around the world today, do we see anything that would, that would support the idea that, yes, we are moving toward the very things that are described here? The description here is the, the fruition of it all, but is there anything happening in our world today that says that we're, we're on the path to that? And I think clearly uh, there are many things that are happening that would indicate that that's where things are headed. And so I want to give you uh, some examples of things that are going on, efforts that are transpiring right now, this very minute, uh, to form ultimately a one world religion. And I want to share with you some different sources and different uh, places where we see this being promoted. And I want to start with what's called the UN Earth Charter, or formerly the UN Earth Charter. In its beginning, that's what it was called. Uh, it's no longer uh, necessary to be attached to the UN. It stands on its own. And it's a very interesting document. You can find it on the internet. You can read their literature directly yourself if you'd like. I'm going to quote directly from them. But the agenda of the Earth Charter is basically the agenda of, of 
what we're reading about here. It's the same agenda as you will see. But it begins with this. It begins with an explanation of what the agenda is. The Earth Charter is an ethical framework, it says, for building a just, sustainable, and peaceful global society in the 21st century. It seeks to inspire in all people a new sense of global interdependence and shared responsibility for the well-being of the whole human family, the greater community of life, and future generations. It is a vision of hope and a call to action. Now remember, we're talking about a one-world government, a one-world economy, a one-world commercial system, a one-world religious system. That's exactly what the, uh, the UN Charter is promoting. But here, the the kind of the, the emphasis centers around the, the earth itself. So it's, uh, you know, that, that's, that's part of the whole thing that uh, the earth and man and all of, the, all, all of the rest of creation were all one. And in order, you know, in order to have a peaceful existence, we've all got to come together. There's got to be a one world system is, is what it's calling for. Um, The, the original players in this are, are interesting. Stephen Rockefeller is uh, a chairman of the Earth Charter, uh, along with Mikhail Gorbachev and Maurice Strong. Maurice Strong is well known around the world as a, like a new age leader. We all know, I think, who Mikhail Gorbachev is, the former president of what was then the Soviet Union. And, and the one responsible really for the collapse of the Soviet Union in many ways, um, <coughs> they are the ones who were part of the drafting committee for the Earth Charter. And um, they said this, the way to go about building peace on Earth, so that's their objective, is through the inclusive, integrated, and spiritual approach of the Earth Charter. Gorbachev described the charter as an effort to incorporate the wisdom of the world's religions. He said, my hope is that this charter will be a kind of Ten Commandments, a sermon on the mount that provides a guide for human behavior toward the environment in the next century and beyond. So they see this document as a replacement of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. But notice the emphasis on environment. And what we're going to see as we go through here is that it's all connected. You might wonder now, you know, what is all the talk about global warming and how come, you know, there's so much controversy about it and how come some people are so dogmatic about it? It's all part of the same thing. It's not just about the environment, but it's about all kinds of other things. It's a worldview. And... The charter itself gives various points of explanation as to what its purposes are. Now, I'm just going to read to you five. There are many more, but I just selected these five uh, because I think they best describe what's at the heart of it. But here they are. Number one, recognize that all beings are interdependent and every form of life has value regardless of its worth to human beings. Now, one of the things that comes through in this uh, document and also just in the the thought of the left these days is what's known as speciesism. Speciesism is the idea that that all species are equal, that there's no superior species, that man is no more superior uh, to any other species. Uh, there's no distinction really in importance between an insect and a human being. This idea underlies this whole uh, charter. And of course, this idea underlies uh, much of the thinking of the left in this country and around the world. Peter Singer, who's a a famous uh, philosopher and ethicist, uh, he is a professor at Princeton University. Uh, He's the one who's most famous for promoting speciesism. And, and he is so adamantly opposed to the idea that human beings are, are better than any other species. He actually said, if you were walking down a deserted road and you found a, a, a struggling uh, infant and you also found a struggling 
uh, animal of some sort, it would probably be ethically superior to take care of the animal than the human being. Uh, these, of course, are the same people that think abortion is perfectly uh, legitimate. Uh, you know, recently we've heard radical things coming from uh, people in power in our country saying that uh, the unborn child does not have any constitutional rights and things like that. So it's, it's all wrapped up in the same mindset. So that's number one. Secondly, affirm faith in the inherent dignity of all human beings and in the intellectual, artistic, ethical, and spiritual potential of humanity. Now on the surface, those things all sound pretty good. You just have to dig deeper to find out what they mean by that. And then you realize, oh, this is, um, you know, this is, uh, it's obviously a very anti-biblical understanding of life. Uh, third, to ensure universal access to health care that fosters reproductive health and responsible reproduction. So there you have reproductive health. Uh, that's all euphemisms for abortion and things like that. The fourth one is interesting. Eliminate, discrimi eliminate discrimination in all its forms, such as that based on race, color, sex, sexual orientation, religion, language, and national, ethnic, or social origin. And then fifthly, promote the equitable distribution of wealth within nations and among nations. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but uh, this document that was finalized in June of 2000, this is exactly what is being forced on the world and the culture today. All of these things, this is it. This is what we're seeing. And, and I don't know if you've noticed, but it's, it's kind of like a tsunami. It's just uh, unstoppable, it seems. It just seems to keep rolling across the land and around the world, these new, uh, this new morality, a morality that's based in an a, a anti-theistic worldview is rolling across the land. Now, I'm reading directly from the website of the Earth Charter. You can read it yourself. But it says this, the Earth Charter was finalized and then launched as a people's charter on the 29th of June, 2000, by the Earth Charter Commission, an independent international entity in a ceremony at the Peace Palace in The Hague. The drafting of the Earth Charter involved the most inclusive and participatory process ever associated with the creation of an international declaration. This process is the primary source of its legitimacy as a guiding ethical framework. The legitimacy of the document has been further enhanced by its endorsement by over 6,000 organizations, including many governments and international organizations. In light of this legitimacy, an increasing number of international lawyers recognize that the Earth Charter is acquiring the status of a soft law document. Soft law documents like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are considered to be morally but not legally binding on state governments that agree to endorse and adopt them, and they often form the basis for the development of hard law. So it's, they said here, it's, it's a soft law document at this point. They see it as morally binding, but not, notice, yet legally binding. Their hope is that it will become hard law, that it will be uh, required by law. And you know what? They're moving in that direction. And we see it happening all around us today. Because even in the land of the free here in America, if you disagree with the views of the left, you're now being prosecuted legally for that. And their hope is to just see this established uh, as law everywhere. Maybe you heard recently that someone suggested uh, that those who question the legitimacy of global warming ought to be imprisoned. That was something that came from uh, some of our politicians recently. So that's what we're talking about here. So of course, their desire is that this kind of thing become hard law. Now, here's the scary thing about this. This is spooky even. The, this, this charter, the Earth Charter, is kept in what's called the Ark of Hope, 
which is a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, for those of you that don't know, that is the place where the Ten Commandments were kept. That is the, uh, you know, goes back to, to Moses and the, and the giving of the law. So by creating this Ark of Hope and putting this in there, to me, it just seems like there's a blatant effort to say, you know, we are replacing all of that old stuff just like Gorbachev suggested. So this is happening. Now, on the Earth Charter's website, there's an article. Now, now let me just say this. The, these guys, Gorbachev and Strong and uh, Rockefeller and these guys, you know, they, they represent a spirituality, uh, leftist ideology, uh, but, but let's move it now to the theological um, perspective. So on the website, there's an article by Brazilian Catholic theologian Leonardo Boff in which he compares the encyclical of Pope Francis entitled On Care of Our Common Home. This was the encyclical that Pope Francis wrote uh, shortly after he became the Pope talking about care for the planet. And he says that the encyclical and the Earth Charter are remarkably similar. And in many places, they parallel one another. So that's where we make the connection away from just the, the secular, you know, philosophical kind of vague spiritual mindset of the others that were mentioned. And now we're talking about the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. And his encyclical, according to Boff, is very similar to the Earth Charter, so similar that he says it's obvious that they have, uh, or that the Pope drew from the Earth Charter. So th this is an example. I wanna give you some other examples. Um, this is uh, obviously with Pope Francis, it's the most current kinds of things. But go, going back a little bit, going back a few decades, because what we're talking about here, right, is the idea that there's a one world religion that is, that is in the, the process of being formed. Back in 1986, Pope John Paul II hosted the World Day of Prayer for Peace. And that was in Assisi, Italy. That unprecedented gathering at the Pope's invitation drew leaders of Jews, Buddhists, Shintoists, Muslims, Zoroastrians, Hindus, Unitarians, traditional African and Native American religions, and many others. Together under the roof of the Basilica of St. Francis, they all prayed side by side with Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant leaders for world peace. So this is not new. This has been in the making for decades, going all the way back to the early days, really, of the 20th century. But we're seeing that it is gaining momentum and influence as time goes on. On the 200th anniversary, moving from Catholicism to Anglicanism, on the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth, Rowan Williams, then Archbishop of Canterbury, and we can thank God he's no longer the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, he led the Church of England in a public apology to Charles Darwin for misunderstanding him. Uh, in regard to the debate within the Anglican Church over homosexuality, Williams wrote, I conclude that an active sexual relationship between two people of the same sex might therefore reflect the love of God in a way comparable to marriage, if and only if it had about it the same character of absolute covenanted faithfulness. And then in a conciliatory letter to Islamic leaders, Rowan Williams apologized for the offensive nature of the doctrine of the Trinity and for Christianity's use of violence throughout its history. Now, the list goes on and on and on. These are just a few examples. But what we're talking about here is the amalgamation of the world's religions with a corrupt Christianity. That is what is happening here. And I think that is what is being described in the book of Revelation. And we see this, it's been coming, it's been talked about, it's happened in uh, the, the corporate world, but it's happening more and more just across the board in the public. Think, just think about this for a moment. Yeah, think about the world religions and the, the current 
just general secular attitude toward religion and the culture. Okay, Islam. What, what is the general attitude? Well, uh, coming from our political leaders, Islam is coddled in the culture. We, we want to coddle Islam. We want to we want to protect it from any kind of uh, you know suggestion that it's a that it's a non peaceful religion. There's there's a coddling of Islam in the culture. Um, many decades ago, there was a full embracing of Hinduism and Buddhism. And you, you find that all throughout the corporate world. It's been there forever. All of the different, you know, techniques that have been borrowed from Hinduism and Buddhism. And, uh, you know, none of these things are a problem in the culture. Uh, nominal Christianity, mainline Protestantism, for example, well, that's just pretty much ignored and understandably because it really doesn't stand for anything. So, of course, you can easily ignore it. But biblical Christianity, now that's hated in many sections today. That is despised. That is opposed. That, that is the real problem. So we're already seeing what is going to ultimately you know, come to full fruition under this uh, new world religion with the Antichrist. And just as we're seeing now, you know, the, you think of the Middle East, you think of the genocide with Christians, and you think of Western democracies, you think of our country that uh, our leaders refuse to even acknowledge that there's a genocide taking place. They have not done a whole lot to help the plight of these people. After all, they're Christians, you know, we, we don't, you know, who, who cares? I mean, that's, that's pretty much uh, the attitude that we see today. So... All of this brings us to this. The last verse of 17, chapter 17, tells us something that is so interesting. We're talking about the woman. We're talking about this false religious system. We're talking about the fact that it's carried by the empire itself, supported. But notice what it says. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So it tells us right here that the woman is a city. So here's the big question, what city is it? And this is the thing that's not easy to pinpoint. In, in Revelation, there are three cities, I think, that stand out. Two of them are named, and one is, I think, maybe assumed. Um, Jerusalem, of course, uh, features huge in Revelation. Jerusalem is named. Babylon is named. But think about this. There is no Babylon. Well, there's not a Babylon right this moment. But as we're going to see Wednesday night, I think it's very, very probable that there will be a Babylon in the future, that Babylon will be rebuilt. And perhaps you've heard uh, that there were early attempts after the Gulf War, there were early attempts to rebuild Babylon by the United Nations with the United States contributing, there's still a desire to do that, to rebuild it as a cultural center, but it's easy transition from a cultural center to something else. So Babylon is certainly mentioned. We're, it, we, we're reading about it right here. And chapter 18 speaks very specifically of Babylon. But there's one other city, and the city that's not mentioned, but I think inferred, is Rome. And I think Rome is a definite player in the future because remember this, the, the picture from Daniel is that there are going to be four successive kingdoms that are going to rule over, essentially over Israel. And they, it begins with the Babylonian Empire and it goes to the Persian Empire and then it goes to the Greek Empire, then it goes to the Roman Empire. But the interesting thing, according to Daniel, is that the Roman Empire has two phases to it. Phase number one is in connection to the first coming of the Messiah. Phase number two is in connection to the second coming of the Messiah. Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision, 
And in this vision, there's a great image, and it's an image uh, with a head of gold and a chest of silver and belly and thighs of bronze and then uh, legs of iron and, and feet of iron and clay and toes and the ten toes. And, and there it says, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. The days of what kings? The kings that are represented by the ten toes, the kings that are represented here by the ten horns. And that's why we talk about a revived Roman Empire. Daniel made it clear that there's two phases to the Roman Empire. So, of course, if it's going to be the revived Roman Empire, then Rome has to play into it. And so, it seems to me that Rome is the best candidate. And now think about this. If in the minds of most people, Christianity has a central headquarters anywhere on the earth, where do you think that is in the minds of most people? Of course, it's Rome. Now, we don't necessarily think that way because we're not submitted to the bishop of Rome, the pope. So we don't think of Christianity as being centered in Rome. But you know what? Everybody else does. And of course, when secular people talk about um, Christianity, they often think of Rome. They often think of the Pope. Think of the celebrity status that the current Pope has as he comes to America and tours. And, and so, you know, look, Christianity, all, everything combined together is the largest religion in the world. And Catholicism makes up a, a huge portion of that. So Rome seems to be the place, but the Christianity there is and always has been not only mostly unbiblical, but quite often anti-biblical and in reality, cor a corrupted form of Christianity. Now, in previous times, anybody saying what I just said would get severe pushback from Roman Catholics. But you know, the interesting thing right now, ironically, is that even Catholics, especially conservative Catholics, all over the world are concerned about the state of their church and they're concerned about the current Pope. And they believe, many of them, that the Pope is leading the church astray from its historical foundations. There's a massive battle going on in the Catholic church today as we speak. Because what many conservative Catholics believe, and I think they're right, the Pope seems to be more in sync with the political left than with the historical church and the Bible. And there's all kinds of stuff coming out about this recently. The Pope just did another encyclical on the family. And although he did not change, because he doesn't have the ability to do it alone, he did not change any church law he basically gave every single priest in the world permission to use their own judgment in relation to certain laws of the church. Now, forever the Catholic Church has taught that if you are divorced, uh, regardless of the reason, uh, you are excluded from the sacraments and especially from communion. So that wasn't changed on, a, on an official level, but what the Pope said is he said, well, I'm just going to you know, encourage all of the individual priests to use their own judgment when it comes to those kinds of things. Now, many Catholics say, that's great. That's fantastic. And of course, I, I think the whole position that they've held for all these centuries is wrong as well. But beside, that's beside the point. Uh, many, many would say, well, this is fantastic. But the conservative the traditional Catholics are saying, no, no, this is wrong. You, you just gave the priest permission to violate the teaching of the church. And there's hints in the encyclical that that same kind of attitude is to be displayed when it comes to dealing with same-sex relationships. So you see... Here's my whole point, in case you missed it. The world is rushing toward this type of a thing that, that's being described here in Revelation. We're reading about the future. It's not here yet, but it's moving in this direction. We can see that it's moving in this direction. 
And like I said earlier, it's like a tsunami. It's, it just seems unbelievable how you know, unstoppable it is, how, how crazy it is. To where today, if you don't think that a man should be able to go use the, the woman's toilet, then you are a bigot. The New York Times said that today. This is everything we're talking about, where there's a complete equality. There's no judging right or wrong, especially according to biblical standards. There's a new standard attempting to be set up, and this will culminate when this corrupt church brings all of these other religions under its umbrella and it is all turned into just a, a religion that, like I said earlier, basically uh, worships nature and man with only vague references to God. But it will, after the destruction of this entity by the political powers, it will then become the blatant open worship of Satan. So the best news in all of this is that before this happens, the church will be removed from the planet, the true church. That's, that's, the, that's the good news. But listen, this doesn't mean that things won't get worse before they get better. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, if you believe that he is God the Son, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming back to judge the world, if you believe the Bible is true, if you believe that God has uh, something to say about the way we live sexually and so forth, you are the minority. We are the minority, and in the minds of many, not just the minority, but we are the enemy. That's the way the picture is being painted currently in the culture. The church is the enemy, the true church. So it might get worse before it gets better. You know, we will definitely be removed from the earth before the Antichrist comes to power, but uh, all of these things are gonna continue to go in this direction in preparation for that. So we might be increasingly squeezed as time goes on. So what does that mean for us? What is our response? Well, I think our response needs to be uh, the same response that Paul called uh, Timothy to have in his day when Timothy lived in a time when it was unpopular to be a Christian, when it was certainly unpopular to be a leader in the church. And what did Paul say to Timothy? He said, guard what was committed to your trust. He said, hold fast the pattern of sound words. He said, that good thing, the gospel that was committed to you by the Holy Spirit, keep that. He said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience and doctrine. Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. You know what we have to do? We have to. We have to graciously and lovingly and firmly continue to stand on the truth. We have to continue to speak the truth in love even to a culture that doesn't want to hear it. And we have to do so knowing that many people are deceived. They're, they're blinded. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And we've got the key to release them from prison. It's the truth. It's God's word. The truth will set you free. And there's all kinds of people out there today who are bound up in this system. They've been deceived. And we can't just stand by and let that happen. We have to speak up and say, no, that's not right. That's not true. That's not reality. And of course, that might cost us. But that's what we're called to do. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. This means practically we have got to know what we believe. We've got to know why we believe it. We've got to, I believe, be more committed to our, our Bibles and knowing what they say and being able to freely communicate that we've got to be more committed than ever because we are constantly and relentlessly under attack in this area. And finally, Jesus said this, hold fast what you have that no one take your crown. 
It's time to hold fast what we have. So this is where the world's headed. We see that it's already moving swiftly in that direction. But we have to keep our eyes focused on the kingdom. I was with some men this week from around the country, different Calvary Chapel pastors. We spent a week in prayer together. And as we were praying and talking, one of the guys said, you know, he said, the Lord just showed him this parallel. And he said, you know, in the early church, you had these two streams running alongside one another. There was the corruption of the empire and there was the, the, the life of, of the church. And they were running side by side. The church didn't convert the empire in the sense that, um, you know, we often wish it would happen. The Roman empire became more and more and more corrupt and the church became stronger and stronger and stronger as it stayed focused on its objective, on its calling. And I think that that is a word for us today. Uh, the empire is just morphing from one evil thing into another. And that's not gonna be stopped. The sovereignty of God alone can stop it. We, on the other hand, rather than trying to save the nation, so to speak, we need to be thinking in terms of saving the individuals, of getting the gospel to people and seeing them brought out of the darkness. We know where the world's headed. There's no question about it. The Bible's already told us. And that doesn't mean we disengage from culture and society and not do anything, but it does mean that we recognize our limitations and we also recognize our priorities. And our priority is the gospel. So God help us. Lord, we pray that as we look at these things, as we weigh them out, as we consider them, we pray that you would strengthen us. Lord, give us courage. We need courage in these days to stand upon your truth and not to be moved or swayed as we see the tsunami that's just sweeping the planet, a tsunami of godlessness and rebellion. Lord, help us to stand and help us, Lord, to hold forth the word of life in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Help us, Lord, to lovingly and graciously speak the truth in love. And Lord, we pray that you would have mercy upon this land and we pray that you would turn the hearts of many toward yourself. And Lord, we pray that we as a church would maintain our focus. We thank you that, Lord, ultimately you're gonna deliver your church. But either way, Lord, if things get worse before they get better, help us to continue to trust in you. Lord, show us the urgency of being more and more established in your word so we're not swept away with a tsunami ourselves. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.